welcome to Altamar's 2023 season. I'm Mooney Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter. Happy New Year to Mooney, to Thea, to Annie, and to all our listeners. And we're here again to navigate this year the high seas of global politics, which are as unstable this year as they have been in the past, perhaps even more unstable after everybody has seen how the congressional session started. But today we're going to talk about energy. It was a massive, hot, burning topic in 2022, and what happens in energy is going to remain on the world's headlines for the foreseeable future. Just close your eyes and start rattling off the endless list of huge interlocking issues surrounding energy. Europe's spiraling prices and gas shortages, the war in Ukraine, the cut pipeline to Russia's energy, canceling Nord Stream 2, the rift between the United States and Saudi Arabia, COP27 and the energy transition to renewables. And that's just a few. Today, we're going to chat with international energy guru David Goldwyn about the debates and what the rest of the world is going to face in the years to come. The good news and the lingering concerns. So Peter, the topic of energy is is like a perfect Altamar topic. It's also a perfect example of a geopolitical category five hurricane, a combination of economics, politics, security, and culture. And all of these factors have collided in 2022, kind of triggered after the, the Russian invasion falling unceremoniously on a world already struggling with inflation, recovering from COVID, experiencing spotty production chains, and facing divergent energy policies among the world's wealthiest countries. So while some of the more apocalyptic scenarios did not play out, especially in the economy, households are facing very high costs around the world. The market is shaky. Recession seems imminent and sky high oil prices will continue to create stress on developing economies. And the storm, which undoubtedly, undoubtedly will lead to political transformation and a new power landscape is our subject for today. Yeah, and everybody wants to know about, you know, the energy transition. And it's certainly advancing. Just 10 years ago, the price of solar panels, wind turbines, and electric vehicles were prohibitive. And these were technologies for rich countries, not for the developing world. But costs for these technologies have plummeted. And today, wind and solar power are the cheap new sources of electricity in most markets. Tesla paved the way for electric vehicles. But now traditional car companies such as Ford and Toyota and General Motors are deeply enmeshed in the electric vehicle market. This weekend at my farm, I talked to some farmer about his pickup, which is an electric vehicle. Imagine the American pickup dream, now an electric vehicle. And the result is that Coal is waning. China and India used to build a new coal-burning power plants nearly every week, but with prices for clean energy falling, many of these new coal projects are being canceled. Thank God, I would just add. Yeah, and that sounds really rosy and, and very silver liney, but the the picture is not clear. And 2023 promises to be a very difficult year as global energy consumption will grow by only 1.3% amid a global economic slowdown. So despite all of the decarbonization targets, coal consumption will grow marginally to compensate for those gaps in gas supplies and more extreme weather events that we're always looking at will force many countries to fall back on fossil fuels. And that will delay the energy transition and even widen the gap between the haves and the have-nots. Experts are also predicting that 
renewable energy consumption will surge by about 11% with Asia leading the way, but investments will weaken. And the energy crisis will prompt some governments to backtrack on efforts to phase out the use of nuclear power. So it's not all a happy story. Yeah. And, and you know, what's, what's funny is that you said this is the perfect Altamar subject. And it is because if you just connect it to geopolitical realities, you know, how the energy is now affecting things like the closeness between Russia and China or Saudi Arabia's refusal to lower oil prices and the effect on uh, Saudi relations with the United States. But the real question on everybody's mind is like, what happens with renewables? You know, will the increased global rhetoric about the need for renewables actually lead to a lot of change? I, I hear you saying that this is going to be a wild ride, but for some controversy about renewables, let's ask Taya for her opinion. Hi, I'm Taya Ivanovich, and this is Taya's Take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. So today I want to say two things. First, let's not be naive about the move to renewables. It's not inevitable. I hear people talking about how the war in Ukraine, the sanctions on Russia, and the increased effects of climate change will, quote-unquote, inevitably push towards more green energy. And I wish that were true, but I fear it's not. And here's just one example. Energy crises caused by extreme weather events will encourage coal usage. Extreme weather events such as droughts, heat waves, and hurricanes will have an adverse impact on countries' energy systems. Dry weather in much of the Northern Hemisphere in 2022 led to drought situations in major river systems such as the Yangtze in China, the Danube and the Rhine in Europe, and the Colorado River in the U.S., severely impacting hydropower generation, which provides almost half of low-carbon electricity generation globally. In China and India, hydropower accounts for more than 10% of total electricity generation. And in Brazil, hydropower accounts for nearly 60% of total power generation. The second thing I want us to think about is the uphill road for developing countries. A volatile economic and geopolitical environment, plus these recent extreme weather events we just talked about in Europe and in the U.S., are likely to shift public sentiment in those countries towards channeling climate adaptation funds for domestic needs rather than committing them to assisting other countries and developing countries in particular. So those developing countries such as India, Indonesia, and not to mention across the African continent will struggle to secure meaningful commitments from the rich world to finance their energy transition. So consequently, these countries will be slower to wean themselves off of dirty fuels such as coal and the divergence in energy transition between the developed and the developing world will just widen. And let's not forget, climate change is a transnational issue. It doesn't discriminate against borders or investment resources. So here's my take. I urge you to keep in mind that it's not as simple as, you know, hey, Russia, a key oil producer is sanctioned, so countries will now look for renewable energy. There are many, many more layers to the global climate change issue, and I especially urge you to closely watch the developing world as the West is refocusing on itself. Let me know what you think by tweeting at Altamar Podcast. 
Taya, you're right. Nothing is simple with energy. And you're also right that we focus too often on the big players and not enough on the more energy vulnerable corners of the world. But let's bring in our guest to talk more about that. David Goldwyn is president of Goldwyn Global Strategies, an international energy advisory consultancy, and he's chairman of the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center's advisor group. He's a globally recognized thought leader, educator, and policy innovator in energy security. He winces when I I say it, but he's an energy guru to many high people in many high places. And David served as the U.S. Department, State Department Special Envoy and Coordinator for International Energy Affairs from 2009 to 2011 and Assistant Secretary of Energy for International Affairs. He's the only person to hold both of those U.S. government's international energy leadership positions, and he was a key facilitator of the Climate Action Solutions Center on the sidelines of COP26 in Glasgow, Scotland. David, Happy New Year, and welcome back to Altamar. Happy New Year. Pleasure to be back with you both, and and thank you, as always, for that uh, exceedingly generous uh, and unjustified introduction. I appreciate it. So look, we're, we're trying to tackle a huge topic here because energy has just been on the headlines on so many, in so many issues and, and w- what the future of energy is, I'm sure can fill books, but it's been a year of transformation, disruption, realignment. What, what do you think the most important development in the sector was in the last year? Well, I think without doubt, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the response of the West in terms of sanctions to that invasion was the most landmark event in energy markets since 1973. Uh, Just to to take a, a rack up of what's happened, as a result of the invasion, oil, gas, and power markets were all upended. Climate goals were set back temporarily, but the commitment of Europe in particular to the energy transition has really been redoubled. So Europe, which had long been dependent on Russian oil and gas, is swearing off both. Russia is having to find new markets. Russia is becoming an energy pariah. It can basically only sell its oil or its gas through transportation from what they call a ghost fleet and ghost insurers because no Western company is allowed to touch it under European and U.S. sanctions unless they subscribe to a price cap, which is basically a way to make sure that Russia can sell its oil and gas but can't make significant sums at it. The other response we saw was massive government intervention in the energy markets. We saw Germany buying LNG terminals. We saw it buying Uniper, you know, uh, one of its, its bankrupt companies. Governments are now imposing windfall profits taxes. Europe spent a trillion dollars on subsidies for consumers. And we're seeing price interventions, everything from capping electricity prices to to mandating the price at which energy can be purchased uh, from Europe. So it's really quite, quite massive. And it will change things for the future. The future flows of oil and gas are going to be forever transformed by what Russia has done. So energy security is back uh, back on top of the agenda. And uh, I think the, the bad news has been that in a, in a reach to get any kind of energy, we've seen a lot more coal consumption and oil consumption for electricity. So climate has been set back a little bit, but the reason for the energy transition now, both climate and, in, and moral, uh, but now also national security could not be clearer. So Europe is doubling down. And as we can talk about, the U.S. is 
moving full speed ahead. So it's uh, it's been it's been tremendous and it's irreversible. So I, I just two questions emanate from that great synopsis of of what happened. I guess the, the first one is a, a lot of people predicted this massive downturn and shortage in Europe and. And you've now described so well what the Europeans have done to try to avert that. Ha- have they been successful or is, is the worst still to come? And then I have a follow-up on, on another thing that you said. I think the answer is that um, Europe was both successful and lucky, but the worst may still be yet to come. So we have to remember is that while Europe has chosen to swear off Russian oil and gas, right now it's still importing Russian crude by pipeline and it only really swore off uh, seaborne crude under this price cap December 5th. The ban on products is coming February 5th. And Russian sales of gas to Europe are down to a fifth of what they were a year ago, but they're still there. And the weather was warm and China had COVID restrictions. So demand was down from uh, other countries. Demand was down in Europe and they still had Russian supplies. Next year will be different. Because if, if Europe really swears off Russian gas, where will that substitute gas come from? And there are, unlike oil, there aren't massive spare you know, caverns and spare capacity of LNG, which can come to the rescue. Last year, Asian buyers of US LNG just resold their supplies to Europe. But next year, if you have that big gap, if China returns to the market, then you're going to have a significant shortage of gas for Europe. And while they may make progress on, on storage and they may make progress on efficiency, you're still talking about a big delta, a big gap in where those supplies will come from. And so uh, they better hope for both warm weather and essentially continued recession in China. Otherwise, we could be looking at prices and shortages much more severe next winter than what we saw last winter. And, and my follow-up was... You've described the massive blow to Russia, but a lot, you know when when you read about this, uh, you, you also you know Russia seems to be finding export opportunities to China to other countries. How deep is the hit to Russia? I think it will be felt over time. There's no question that um, that last year Russian exports did not drop significantly. They found markets for their crude. But um, you need to, uh, to take a step back and, and, and describe what this price cap policy is. Essentially, when the European Union in its sixth round of sanctions decided to prohibit European insurers and bankers and shippers from essentially transacting in, 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 Russian, in Russian oil, um, the U.S. feared that this would drive crude prices up to $150. So they came up with this Goldilocks solution, which is that... Um, is that those companies could transact in Russian crude if the price was so low that it facilitated Russia continuing to export so the market wasn't shorted, but depressed the price so much that the Russians really weren't making much money off of it. And a lot of the price went to the insurer or the shipper. And so that worked. Russian crude is trading at a $25 discount to, uh, to, to other crudes. And they have drawn down their sovereign wealth fund and their, their, their reserves significantly. So the government is, is suffering fiscally, but not so much that it's undermining the war. And the war will not be won at the gas pump. It will be won on the ground. What will happen over time is that Russia will either have to live with significantly lower revenues 
or it will have to shut in production. And as it shuts in production, either of gas or of oil, then it will permanently suffer a loss in both revenue and relevance uh, as, as, uh, as it becomes less of a strategic supplier and less of a useful partner for, for OPEC. So we haven't seen the results, the full results of it yet, but they are suffering, suffering fiscally and they will for some time to come. David, let's simplify. You've, you've laid out a very you know, clear map of, of what is happening. If we were to extract from there, um, we, we keep involuntarily uh, doing energy references with our words, but if we were to extract um, the winners <laughs> and losers of this realignment, uh, who are they? I think Russia has been the biggest loser. Um, they've destroyed their credibility as a reliable supplier. They've lost their primary market for, for, for gas, which was Europe. And they really don't have the ability to reroute that gas without building massive pipelines going all the way across the country to Asia or building new LNG plants. Um, and as I've, we discussed earlier, they've become an energy pariah, essentially. No, they can't be traded with unless it's either subject to a price cap or with this ghost fleet of shippers and insurers. So, um, so they're draining their foreign reserves and, and looking at shut-ins. So they're a big loser. Europe, unfortunately, has been a big loser as well. Uh, they have suffered incredibly high electricity prices. They have suffered some deindustrialization. Um, growth has been a serious headwind. It has been a major price for a heroic stance. And so they've been a bit of a loser. And so has the developing world. You know, in the developing world, you tend to have petroleum prices or electricity prices subsidized. So the government pays the difference between the market price and the consumer price. So that's enormous fiscal pressure on those governments, which deprives them of an ability to invest in in development and they're suffering food shortages and, and other things from the inflation that's been been triggered. I would say in terms of winners, relatively speaking, the United States and the Middle East have been winners. The US has an enormous domestic supply of hydrocarbons and we're largely disconnected from the global gas market. So that means our gas, natural gas prices are not so high and therefore our electricity prices are not so high. So we're in a significantly better competitive position. And I would say for the time being, the Middle East has benefited from high commodity prices. Um, some of them are using that to reinvest uh, and some of them are, are not, but they've been a, a fiscal winner as well. But that's unlikely to last for a long time. So how much does this affect kind of the, the power structure around the world, the the level of leadership and and sheer power that could result from this energy crisis realignment and since the trigger which you've mentioned was obviously that the russian invasion of you of ukraine how does the world map shift after this uh, you know sort of set of situations when i think the you know the honest answer is that's still very much in flux and those who are uh, empowered in the short term may be significantly disempowered in in the medium term i think we've learned a couple of things one is that hard power matters, as we're seeing in the in trying to support Ukraine and pushing back Russia, and it's still a bipolar world there. We're talking about you know the you know the U.S. and and China. Um, Europe uh, has had to come come to the U.S. for for support, and so we're still seeing that um, that that the U.S. remains indispensable. China, I think, remains um, a hard power uh, a hard power leader, but their role in the world and their vulnerability has really been highlighted by this crisis, both their inability to manage a domestic health crisis, but they're essentially dependent on Russia as their gas station. 
And that puts them in a, a vulnerable position. And the rest of their oil and gas is coming from the Middle East. And they spent almost two decades trying to diversify China's you know, crude, crude and, and gas supplies away from the Middle East because of the inherent, the inherent volatility. So I think that remains true. In terms of the rest of the realignment, I think China has suffered a bit. Europe has really cooled on its appetite for, uh, for Chinese capital. And China has now aligned itself with essentially the world's weakest economies. Um, and I think in the Middle East, you're seeing, you're seeing um, uh, sort of a, a growth in, you know, in sort of the importance of Saudi Arabia. They are tied to Russia because they're part of this OPEC plus consortium. Um, and China is tied to Saudi Arabia as a supplier. But if you're, you're trying to export to the world and you've aligned yourself with the world's weakest economies, and essentially in competition with the world's strongest economies, it's not clear that that's a great long-term strategy. So um, I think this has been um, a bit of a back to the future moment in terms of you know, geopolitical rivalry and great power alignment. David, if, if I would poll um, listeners of Altamar, they'd probably have me ask one question more than any other, which is about renewables and the future of renewables and you know, are renewables, can they accelerate enough to really make a dent on climate change and which renewable is going to be the wave of the future? So, you know, where are we on renewables really? And what's the effect going to be on climate change? Well, I think the honest answer is that it's going to be early to tell whether renewables can be scaled up and deployed globally in a way that will get us to net zero by 2050. And we'd really have to go region by region to analyze that because you know the West will will reach those targets far ahead of the developing world. But there are some places in the developing world where the opportunities are are quite rich and they can they can move faster. I would say right now, given current technology, we are not in a position to reach net zero by 2050. But if the investments in new technologies that we are seeing come to fruition, it's entirely possible that we will get there before 2050. So I think the, the good news is that solar and wind technologies have come down dramatically in cost and increased in, in efficiencies. And the policies in place in the US and Europe are looking at scaling up offshore wind, onshore wind, uh, and renewable deployments. For industries that require a fuel like aluminum and steel uh, that really can't use solar and wind to generate electricity, we've got cleaner forms of hydrogen. But we have to make progress on direct air capture um, and make it make it more cost competitive. We have to bring down the cost of sustainable bio, biofuels and electrolyzers for hydrogen before before that's really going to be competitive. The real the real delta here is storage, battery storage. We need to get from a position where we are storing renewable energy in terms of weeks and months rather than hours and days. Once we get there. That will be essentially the significantly the end of the age of hydrocarbons, but we are not there yet. And hydrogen is still expensive. Small modular reactors are very promising. We have to bring down the cost, but that can be deployed in the developing world in places where you don't have national transmission systems. So I think that the, you know, the challenge is in the absence of carbon pricing, global carbon pricing, particularly in the developing world, it is hard for these renewables cheap as they are, efficient as they are, to compete with hydrocarbons. So we've got to, we've got to ramp up on the climate finance system. Um, we've got to help countries get more investable frameworks. The technology is not really the problem. It's moving to scale 
and storage. But if we're able to, 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 to fix those problems, um, then I think we're going to see really a rapid scale up in, in renewables worldwide. And what happens to the countries that are producing hydrocarbons today when these renewables are scaling up in 10 years? Well, I think hydrocarbons are going to be with us for a long time. Um, they're going to be indispensable for plastics. Uh, they're for, you know, for various petrochemicals, uh, all the PPE we use during COVID. There'll be a market for it. And, you know, even in, even in the U.S., you know, where we're, you know, we, we're, we're, you know, we're massively scaling up renewables, it's still 20% of electricity. So hydrocarbons will be there for a while, but they will diminish in salience. They will diminish in market share. So the low risk, low cost, low carbon producers of hydrocarbons will survive. And the high carbon ones will have to diversify into something else. But it will, you know, it'll be a declining curve, particularly for, you know, sort of the resource dependent economies. And I think they know that. You see much more credible talk about diversification in, in the Arab Middle East than we saw 20 years ago. I mean, they've been talking about it for 20 years, but now we're seeing it start to ha- sort of happen. So hydrocarbons will still be there. They're not going to go out of business, but they're going to need other other sources. And it will be it will be backup. It will be about resilience. It will be about peaking. Um, it won't be about um, the primary source of transportation and electricity. What happens to the Gulf and OPEC Plus and 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 the the political and geostrategic strength that those countries hold today? Do you, do you expect that to wane, obviously, in, in 10 years or in 15 years? In 15 years, they will be less politically important, um, and they will, um, they will need to diversify, or they will become very poor countries. And, and I think that is, that is not news to them on either front. That's why I think there is a, a bit of a rush to maximize the value of hydrocarbons in the near term for them, uh, and, and to use that, to rechannel that money into, into diversification. Um, so... You know, but that's 15 years out. In the short run, you know, OPEC uh, and OPEC Plus, which is the Russia in uh, uh, Russia, is the plus in OPEC Plus, are going to remain remain important. Um, you know, for you know, for your listeners, the you know the ability to impact oil prices really lies with those who can maintain spare capacity to bring oil onto the market when there are shortages. And those who have the ability to curtail production in order to elevate prices when they are low. So the United States does not have that power. We don't have big enough reserves to throw to the market, even with the SPR. And we don't have the ability to tell our producers not to produce. OPEC does, and that's what gives them power. So, uh, so you know, they, they will remain important for, for the medium term because they have that spare capacity. Uh, but Russia, the plus in OPEC plus, you know, as it declines in production, it will have less flexibility to cut production to elevate prices, and it will, it's an investment pariah, it will have less ability to expand production. So I think they're not going to matter so much uh, in, in a few years. David, you mentioned um, developing countries as kind of obvious losers, and, and Taya has talked about how these developing countries are, are facing an uphill battle. There's extreme weather events everywhere, the public sentiment in these countries about prioritizing climate change and, and funds for domestic needs before assisting other countries is, is going to be an additional impact. So h- how do you see the developing countries transitioning? 
I see three three baskets of issues for the developing world. One is how do they how do they decarbonize their economies? How do they deal with mitigation? Uh, that's about changing their existing energy systems. The second is how do they deal with adaptation? The fact what we we're not going to be able to fix rising seas, and the third is you know uh, what should we expect of develop the developing world in terms of a just transition? How fast and how hard should this really be? Given that they were not the largely the contributors to all these emissions. So on the decarbonization front, I mean, I think Taya is absolutely right that the the fiscal crisis in Europe and the U.S. has led to underperformance in delivering the climate finance which was promised. It was bad before the crisis, and even with the Inflation you know, Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Bill, we did not U.S. did not get the money which it had it had committed. So that's a serious problem. But there's a good solution there too, which is that. If the if developing countries are investable, and by that I mean if they can charge a cost recoverable tariff for somebody who invests in electricity, and use government money to subsidize the poor, there is enormous amount of private capital that will invest in the developing world. And the results of COP twenty six, the I mean the G fans as it's called, the global you know finance for net zero. Um, there's a lot of private capital which, if government will provide some credit support or some risk, we'll invest in those countries. So I think, I think there's real hope there and new mechanisms, and there's a policy path forward. Adaptation is different. You can't make money on adaptation. No one's going to build a new seawall for the Seychelles. And that's where, that's where we really owe these countries uh, this money, and, uh, and we haven't delivered yet. And I would say, just say quickly on the, the just transition, we just had a U.S.-Africa leadership summit here in the U.S., and it was crystal clear from the countries in sub-Saharan Africa that they want to continue to produce hydrocarbons while they manage the energy transition because that's how they're going to develop. And thank you very much. We didn't contribute to all this, you know, all these emissions. So don't hurry us to keep it in the ground until we've, we've made our development too. David, we could stay here all day. I have a couple more questions very quickly as we run out of time. The first is definitely about the Biden administration, kind of foreign energy policy, which is a, a carrot and stick, very much focused on human rights and democracy. How will the energy issue change the role of the U.S. as a key producer and then the relationships with the rest of the world? Well, broadly speaking, the, the more self-sufficient the United States has become, Uh, and other Western countries, the more free it is to criticize the internal conduct of other oil producers. And we didn't do this a whole lot when we needed Saudi Arabia in the Cold War, and we didn't do it a lot when we were you know, needing them to contain Iran. But after the shale boom, we got a lot more vocal. Whether it's effective is really another matter. Uh, it's not so clear that this is, is effective. But countries are always going to have a balance between how they're going to talk to countries about strategic issues, migration with Mexico or non-proliferation, and how hard they're going to push them on their internal conduct. And so that's why I've seen, you know, so the Biden was pretty hard on, uh, on Mohammed bin Salman and, uh, and they were pretty, uh, they had, we had some hard pushback, um, but we still got to deal with them. And, and that's why I think it's so, what is so unsatisfying about U.S. foreign policy in the human rights space to human rights advocates. Um, but I think, you know, the, um, we have a lot more freedom uh, to, you know, to criticize and to influence than we did before. Um, and, Uh, that will not that 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 freedom is on the rise, not on the wane. Finally, crystal ball. What will the world look like in in terms of energy in five years? Will we all be driving electric vehicles? How is uh, the 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 future of energy? Well, the future of energy is bright. I would say in five years, the world may not look a whole lot different than it does right now, but the change will be on the horizon. And in ten years, I think the world may look 
significantly different. Um, you know, I think the real, the real question is how quickly can we actually deliver on things like the Inflation Reduction Act? It's a lot of money, a lot of capital, but the real banal issues about whether we win or lose are, are there enough people in the Department of Energy to move the money? Can the states and localities absorb it quickly enough to spend it? Can offshore wind get permitted quickly enough? And the same with, and the same with Europe. And that is, that is up in the air. We will have these eight hydrogen hubs. Is there really demand? Can they bring the cost down? If so, then I think um, then the future will be bright. Carbon border adjustment seems to be happening, which might actually persuade, you know, sort of the conservative part of the U.S. political system to support carbon pricing as a competitive matter. You know, so I think we're going to have a very volatile five years as we see what works out and what doesn't. But if you if you looked at the suite of, you know, next generation technologies, advanced voltaics, you know, faster windmills, fusion. Um, battery storage, uh, even new kinds of sequestration. Right now, we're in the R&D phase, but five years from now, we're going to have a real beat on what works and what doesn't, and we will see that horizon. So I'm, I'm optimistic, but um, five years, not so big a change. Ten years, let's hope it's major. David Goldwyn, thank you so much once again for this fascinating sort of whirlwind tour of where energy is going. Thanks again for joining us on Wall Tomorrow. Always a pleasure. Well, Peter, that was a very thorough conversation about uh, our title, Everything Energy. I think it's um, it, it's interesting how this realignment was triggered by one incident and, and really is is shaping the future of energy policy around the world and, and also the politics. One thing that struck me um, was the description, kind of the retro description of a bipolar world. And I'm left thinking whether this uh, trigger of, of the invasion of Ukraine and, and all of the implications that it has uh, is going to create a, a shift back into a multipolar, uh, from a multipolar world into a bipolar. So I, I'm, I'm just curious to know how this is going to play out. And I'm sure we're going to follow all these trends in Altamar moving forward. You know what? What? What hit me was if we thought that 2022 was chaotic, wait for 2023 and 2024 and 25 and 26. I mean, it just seems like the chaos in the energy world is really driving a lot of the geopolitical and the geostrategic changes that we're going to be seeing around the world in an increasingly flailing and crazy way. So I, I just thought it was very, very interesting because anybody who thought that like the war and the chaos that created will subside, well, wait for what's coming. So that's that's today on energy, but I'm sure we're going to be following this very closely. And as always, you can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcast from. And don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can also sign up for our bi-weekly free newsletter for analysis of global trends. We'll see you next time. <laughs>